Okay, let's see. Um, nine. Bet. Family. House. In. Tent floor. How can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. My lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Okay, that's pretty snazzy. All right, so that's Psalm 119, verses 8 through 16. And then we have... Okay. Um, a guy named Epaphras Morales, he's a uh, pastor in Tanzania, and he extends his welcome to anyone who wants to come and visit over there. I hear from him from time to time, and uh, uh, he just wanted me to announce that, and I'll say it again hopefully Sunday if I remember, is that uh, just in case you ever have a desire to go and visit the people over there, we got a standing invitation from Isaac in Uganda, and I know that uh, Oma Silas in Kenya would love to have visitors and then Epaphras Morales in Tanzania. So there you go. We got uh, people that are offering to have you come and spend some time with them. And I have no idea what the requirements are nowadays as far as if you're vaccinated or not. I don't know what. Uh, Africa is 6% vaccinated. So my guess is that they Howdy. don't care. But hi, how are you? How's your dad doing? Okay. All right. Well, let me know later about that. All right, so we have, um, let's see, we got that, and um, we'll read this day in Christian history. Let's see here, today is the ninth, yes. Okay, the Bible meant everything to Ulrich Zwingli, and the sword meant more than it probably should have. In Zurich, Switzerland, stands a statue of a man holding a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. That's like the photo we got on the wall in the kitchen there. Courageous and resourceful, the Zurich pastor was ruthless in his pursuit of reform, persecuting defectors from the Swiss Reformation and taking up arms against the resistant Catholic cantons. The Lord Jesus said, those who use the sword will be killed by the sword. Swingley perished on the battlefield of Capel on October 11, 1531. On December 9, 1531, Henrik Bollinger succeeded Swingley as pastor of the Zurich Great Church and the leader of the Reformed movement in German-speaking Switzerland. Although a theological disciple of Zwingli, Bullinger was in many ways greater than his master. Born in 1504 in Bremgarten, Switzerland, Henrik Bullinger was one of the five sons of the village priest. His father paid the regional bishop a yearly tribute for the privilege of marriage, forbidden to the Roman Catholic, <coughs> excuse me, Roman Catholic clergy. Heinrich was groomed for the priesthood himself from an early age studying in Cologne, Germany in 1519. He was introduced to the writings of the church fathers. Their insistence on the priority of scripture moved Bollinger into his own study of the Bible, which led to his further reading of the popular works of Martin Luther. Seeds of reform were being sown in Bollinger's heart and mind. Returning to Switzerland with his master's degree in 1522, Bollinger became an abbot of a monastery in Capel, where he taught the monks directly from the New Testament. Five-month assignment in Zurich introduced him to Zwingli and the, founder, and the foundations of the Swiss Reformation. 
Upon his return to Capel, he convinced the abbot and all the monks of the truth of the Reformation. In 1529, Bollinger's father declared himself a Protestant and was removed from his priesthood at Brain Garden. The townspeople, however, invited Heinrich to take his father's place as the church, church's first evangelical minister. In Brain Garden, Bollinger's pastoral and teaching gifts became apparent. While there, he married Anna Adleischweiler, a former nun. <laughs> Their marriage was loving and long, producing 11 children. That's a lot more than none. Uh, all of their sons became Protestant ministers. In 1531, when Ulrich Zwingli was killed, Zurich called on Heinrich Bullinger to take up the mantle of its fallen captain. He proved himself up to the task, starting on the path that Zwingli had blazed. Bullinger soon forged his own way. He was a devoted pastor whose home was constantly open to the hungry, the lost, the persecuted, and the spiritual seeker. Although his salary was meager, he refused any gifts, giving of his own small income to hospitals and institutions of mercy. <coughs> the harried exiles of Bloody Mary's Catholic reign in England found refuge in Bollinger's Zurich. When they returned home to England, they became leading Puritans. Bollinger's preaching was powerful and his pen never rested. For 40 years, he preached as often as seven times a week. He wrote commentaries on almost every book in the Bible, maintaining remarkable correspondence with Christians and theologians all over the Protestant world. He corresponded with royalty as well. His wise and persuasive words brought about many a needed compromise between doctrinal opponents within the Reformation, and his pastoral heart produced one of the first Protestant books for comforting the sick and dying. His writings outnumber those of Luther and Calvin combined. Meek, wise, and patient, Bollinger gave the Reformation what Zwingli probably would not have. He had, even had he lived, order both ecclesiastical and theological. When Heinrich Bollinger died in 1575, he left behind a church truly reformed. His legacy lives on in the Reformed and Presbyterian traditions. Uh, let's see here. The Bible took priority in Bollinger's study and, as a result, shaped his life. Good question next. Is the Bible a priority in your life? In your devotions, do you primarily read the Bible or books about the Bible? It's amazing how much light the Bible can shed on some of the books about it. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. I've said that many times that I know people that read book after book after book after book about the Bible, and yet they've never read the Bible. I love when we get into a discussion about something theological, somebody they'll, they'll reference a book or a, a preacher. It's like, why, why are you talking about that? Why are we talking about the Bible? Isn't yeah, the, the Bible is where it comes from. So, yeah. B O L L Bollinger? No, Bollinger. B U L L I N G. So, is he related? I was wondering that while I was reading that. I wonder if he's re related to E W Bollinger or E E. Are they the same? Uh, yes, yeah, same, same spelling. It so it could be, but that was 1500s, and Bollinger that I cite is like the 1800s, I think maybe 17, I think the 1800s. Anyway, yeah, so it could be the same family, but I don't know that. Uh, before we get into our, our um, Ephesians 6.16, before we get into that today, I told church on Sunday that I'd gotten an email after doing the class last week. I didn't know what the guy was talking about, but apparently I mentioned Methodism at some point during the class. Okay, mm -hmm. I, I didn't go back and watch, but 
I promised that I would read what he said, and then I spent about five minutes on this email. I didn't research anything. It was off the top of my head. But um, this is why it's important to be in the Bible. And I, like what you just said, instead of citing a pastor or citing a denomination, <laughs> I enjoyed your message, but I say the following, not in anger, but to address your lack of understanding. Methodists do not believe our salvation is based on works, but that works are simply a response to his grace. How can one be brought to the knowledge of what has been done for us and not want to reach out to others? Okay, if you can lose your salvation any time after being saved, your salvation is based on works. on works. There's no way around that. Everybody got that? Think it through. There's no way around it. So he's already wrong. But I was in a Methodist church. I know what the Methodists teach, and I also know the perversion. Yeah, his father was a Methodist preacher for 30 years. Okay, so, yeah, maybe 50. Okay, so I, I uh, yeah, back when it was almost to church. Okay, um, so my answer to him, I never said Methodists believe salvation, getting saved. Getting saved is based on works, but that their salvation can be lost. This is an indisputable tenet of Methodism. If salvation can be lost, then it is, by default, man's works that keep him saved. So what I said is correct. It is true. If we have to do anything after salvation in order to be saved, it was never of grace through faith. It was always conditioned on works. Methodists play both sides of this issue, and it is a failing of Methodism. They say you were saved by grace, and then you must work to keep your salvation or demonstrate that you were saved. Try 2 Peter 1 verse 9 etc. That's my answer to him. Second, this is his second point. Second, sin did not, listen to this, sin did not originate in the garden, but before the garden. This is important because without understanding true original sin, then it's impossible to get it right. You are incorrect. Try reading Genesis 3. Sin came through one man, Romans 5.12. Sin is not imputed without law, nor can it be. God gave the law to Adam. Adam was in the garden with Eve. Even Eve was deceived, 1 Timothy 2.14. Her deception was accepted by Adam, to whom the law was given. Man fell through sin. That's the whole scenario of how sin entered the world, okay? I didn't check that. I had a, two typos in that sentence to him, so he probably thinks I'm a buffoon. Anyway, then he went through, all the way through, he cited um, Ezekiel 18 from verse 24 all the way down, and then he started citing other stuff that had nothing to do with anything. And then, I just said context. Ezekiel was a priest and a prophet of the law. We don't mix apples and oranges and come up with a bag of apples. In the book of Revelation, Jesus, speaking to John, speaks about the condition of the churches, and he threatens to take away their candlestick. He speaks about them leaving their first love. He then encourages them to repent and return. I said, this is correct. Jesus was speaking to a church. a church, not to individuals within the church. We do not get a lampstand. We receive salvation. Check the pronouns and who was addressed. This verse has nothing to do with the loss of salvation. Next point, the author in Hebrews addresses walking away. No, it says, if they fall away, Hebrews 6.4. He is speaking to Hebrews who are under the law about returning to the law. There's no sacrifice for sin under the law that takes away sin. That's Hebrews 10, verse 4. This verse has nothing to do with the loss of salvation. It is speaking of the insufficiency of the law to do anything in regard to salvation. 
commentary provided, and I gave him my Hebrews commentary, and I said, read this. Okay, it'll take him about six months to read through the whole thing, but okay. Actually, I told him to scroll down to that one verse, but you got to keep it in context, so read the whole book of Hebrews. The Methodist, this is his next comment, the Methodists do not believe in falling away, but their free will does not cease when we acknowledge Christ because, I'm sorry, but his will surrender, and through our entering heaven, the weight of imagery of Christ as the slain lamb will finally be our seal. So he's, his words didn't make any sense. I understand that, but he's saying that we'll get our final seal that we're saved in heaven. The Bible does speak of falling away. Yeah, where does it say that? The Bible does speak, this is my comments, the Bible does speak of falling away. See the previous comment. It just doesn't mean what you think. Free will does not cease. I never said it did. Only a lunatic would think so. But this argument dismisses several issues. The covenantal agreement that God has made. Israel walked away from the Lord, but he has not turned, nor will he turn from them. God agreed in covenant to save those who come to him. Secondly, it would mean that God is fallible, saving someone and then unsaving him. But the Bible says we are sealed when we believe and given a guarantee of our salvation. Anybody know the verses? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. That's right. But the Bible, oh yeah. Thirdly, it would mean that God's guarantee was not a guarantee at all. Good luck standing before him and telling him these things. And then he said, I know I'm saved, but I also know I must walk in that relationship he has provided for each day as a choice. As far as total depravity, we are born neutral. I said this is incorrect. Try reading Psalm 51, verse 5. Surely I was conceived in sin from my mother's womb. Okay. And Romans 5, 12. Sin is inherited. If it wasn't, there would be no need for Jesus. Try telling that to the Lord when you see him. We inherited sin and we are totally depraved. And then he said the angels were created as accountable beings. So I said irrelevant. The Bible is about the redemption of man. Okay. I'm not going to go on from there. Yes, I will. I did. Okay. Another one. Adam and Eve were created as accountable beings, but we become accountable through time. Okay? Incorrect. We are accountable because of the sins of our first father, Adam. He is our federal head. Otherwise, there would be no need for the second Adam. Plus, it would make sense to kill every newborn and just send everyone to heaven. It is confused thinking and incorrect theology. Okay, and if you go to Romans, it says sin entered the world through one man, and then sin went to all men, implying, explicitly implying that we have inherited sin. Okay, uh, he said the child that lived for only a few minutes is in need of a savior, but not because of personal sin. All are in need of a savior. This is my answer, including the child conceived in sin and who will be eternally separated from his creator without being under the umbrella of Christ. Try reading 1 Corinthians 7, 14. Of course, you've got to take the surrounding context as well. Do I believe in eternal security? This is his question. Yes, just not the way you believe. My answer, because your theology is incorrect. His comment, how is your belief any different than the Calvinist belief? Because it is diametrically opposed to Calvinist theology. You apparently don't understand what Calvinists teach. I have a quick video that speaks in detail about the era of Wesleyanism and Calvinism, and I sent him the link to that, one of our old classes here. And then he said, God forces us into eternity before or after is still forced, implying you can lose your salvation or walk away from it. God does not force us into eternity. 
he covenanted with us, and he will keep his part of the covenant. A decree from God, unlike our failing idea of him, is an eternal decree. But think it through. If someone said, I want to leave Christ to save me and be cast into hell, not a single court on the planet would say this person is mentally sound. It is a ridiculous proposition. Don't be ridiculous. Thank you for your comments. Please come again. So there you go. That was, took me all about eight minutes or less to answer that. But this is what you get when you don't, it's what it has to do with what we were just talking about. If you don't know the Bible, if you listen to people's theology instead of knowing the Bible, this is what you come up with. But it's funny how the Calvinist insult that he said to you, yeah. it's, it's always that, oh, you're mostly a Calvinist. It's like, why are you saying that? He has like, no but, idea well, what he's The reason about. why they're saying that is because Calvinists say that, okay, you're predestined. Right. So you're, you know, it's like, well, no, it, predestination and losing your salvation are two different fallacies that are wrong. I mean, like, they're both wrong. Right. So it's like, you know, don't, just because I don't believe your What fallacy, you believe doesn't mean don't I throw me into another is. fallacy to, like, say that, like, you know, that, you know, I'm a Calvinist. It's that's, like, well, that's absolutely right. This is the challenge. Right. That's not how. No, and you know what? Most people, you're right. Most people that go to a church don't believe what the the church actually, what the denomination actually teaches. That's you got three different pastors that believe differently within the same denomination. So what he's saying, all I'm talking about is Methodist doctrine. Whatever his pastor teaches, but obviously whoever he listens to is wrong. It's just wrong. And this is why the important point here is that you are expected to read your Bible. That is the most important thing. If you don't, you're, you are accountable for your doctrine. The one who taught you is more accountable, according to James 3.1, but you are accountable for what you believe. And now he's accountable for what he's actually teaching. He's actually teaching. He's no longer just a student. He's telling somebody something. Well, I don't know. I mean, he may email back someday and say, you know, I was wrong. I don't know. I don't know his name. I didn't, you know, I don't, all I got was an email. I don't remember what it was. I just answered and deleted. Same thing I always do. I'm, but yeah, I just thought it was interesting that we got a comment, you know, that long on a study that from somebody that has never addressed me before. And instead of saying, you know, why did you say that? It's all just almost, wasn't an attack. Some people really attack you. He didn't. You know, if they attack you, I usually just delete it or, you know, I say something really nasty. And No, I'm kidding. Anyway, um, okay, we're in Ephesians chapter 6. We're in verse 16. So, yes. I'll go back up to the top of the... Uh, top of the thing. The, uh, exactly what I Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the best breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Verse 16. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to hear your word. And Lord, I would pray that if there's anybody out there that's listening to this study, that they would be willing to not just listen to a study, not just listen to a pastor or a preacher or a teacher, but to read the Bible for themselves. And then they will be able to tell at least, at least minimally, that doesn't sound right. I need to check it out. Lord, help us to be wise with our time. Help us to be careful with this precious word and to handle it according to what you would have for us. But I'm just a guy. I could be wrong, and I would challenge anybody that listens each week to to also check out what they've heard and to think about it and to meditate on it and to contemplate it. And Lord, so this is what I would ask that you would do is instill this in them, that they need to check out your word above all else. Thank you for this precious word. It is a gift. It is a wonderful gift that we share in, and we just are so appreciative of you having spent the many, many millennia to come to the point where we are today, where we're actually anticipating not the coming of Messiah, but the coming again of our Messiah for us. May that day be soon, and until then, may we be in this word. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good catch. Yes. Well, I didn't want to interrupt the flow of things, so I thought that would be the right time to do it. Okay, I'm going to read it because it was just a little different. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Okay, verse 616. <clears throat> Excuse me. Concerning the whole armor of God, Paul continues his list with the words, above all. The words carry an ambiguity in them and could mean either overall or in addition to all. The latter is the proper sense, in addition to all. He is not stating this matter of importance, this as a matter of importance, but of covering all. In other words, just as a soldier covers himself with a shield, we are to take up the shield of faith. The shield in Greek is thurios. The word comes from thura, meaning a door. This is because of the shape, which was oblong. You know those Roman movies you see, and they're all in ranks, and they got these big, uh, looks like a door in front of them, okay? It was oblong. It was about four feet by two and a half feet. It was sometimes curved on the inner side so that one, one could almost completely enclose themselves in it during an incoming salvo, okay? So they got this thing. It's a little bit curved out here. They can kind of get into it, and at the same time, it would cause the arrows maybe to bounce off instead of coming sticking straight in. I don't know if I'll say that, but that's another purpose of that. It was held with the left arm by straps affixed to the inside. Such a shield was usually made of light wood with a brass rim around it. After that, several layers of skin would cover it. It was slightly curved and was kept smooth, being polished with oil so that, yeah, so the arrows and darts would glance off of it. Though a different style of shield was used by Israel, the curved shape of their shields would also allow for complete coverage as is referred to in the fifth psalm. So we're going to go to the fifth psalm, and it says there, whoops, a little too far there, Charlie. Getting there quickly. Don't fall asleep. Oh my gosh. Okay, Psalm 5, and then in verse 12 it says, um, For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. So they had the same type of thing, a shield that they would hold and it would kind of surround them and they could kind of get up and under it. Um, that's one of my, I hate to say it. I love war movies. I, I don't know why I say I hate to say it because I love war movies, but uh, some people don't. So I don't want to 
offend anybody in today's world, but I love to see, especially the war movies of the time where before today, I like today's war movies. I just watched one this week, it took us four or five days to get through, but um, I like the ones like King Arthur, you know, they're out there, they've got the ranks and they've got arrows flying in they can get under the things and the arrows will come and they'll stick through there and just miss the guy's eye or something i love movies like that because they were really in the battle they were they were in the thick of it and uh you know it's just to me interesting to see how people have devised ways of offensive and defensive war over the years but we get the uh idea of what paul is talking about with this particular type of battle where they have these big shields, they hold them with their left arm, it curves around them, and they can get back behind there, and they're able to block the darts that are coming in. As this shield covered all of the other armor, so the shield of faith is intended to cover all of the other armor of God. Its intent is that you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. That's Paul's words. <clears throat> the thought of the shield being a part of the armor of God goes all the way back to um goes yeah all the way back and i've obviously deleted a sentence here i apologize because there's something missing just a few verses later abraham's declaration of righteousness based on his faith was announced okay so obviously somewhere right at the time of abraham i made a point and as i was copying this i deleted something um abraham's yes the same shield of faith is available to us but oh i know where it is uh abraham i am your shield i am your great reward that's what it was that verse so somehow i deleted that and i apologize but that's from genesis uh yes genesis chapter 15. okay matter of fact we'll go there just so you get the right verse i think it's um uh where is that i'm going the wrong way again this is one of my problems in life is i'm always going in the wrong direction that's why i have so many dings on my bumper let's see here um they what yeah, you don't want to go too fast in the wrong direction because, yeah, that would be a problem. Yes, Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Avram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Avram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So there you go. The Lord being a shield goes all the way back to almost the beginning. You know, I mean, uh, obviously the beginning after the flood, but it's, uh, it goes way back, and it says um, a few verses later, Abraham's declaration of righteousness based on his faith was announced. <clears throat> this same shield of faith is available to us, but it should be noted that this is not the active faith which is often referred to in the Bible. It is almost a passive one. It is that of endurance. A shield is a defensive item. It is meant to protect from something. Thus, it reflects the covering of God, just as was promised to Abraham. As the fiery darts come in, we can stand behind the promises of God and remain protected. These fiery darts are well described by David in Psalm 120. So right here, Psalm 120. I got to get through Psalm 119. That might take a couple yeah, hours. We're getting there. Okay, so Psalm 120, verses 3 and 4. What shall be given to you? Or what shall be done to you, you false tongue sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree so turn the page here the lies of the enemy his verbal attacks through his workers of iniquity the tempting words of a seductress and like are such fiery darts they come in and we are to allow the lord to shield us from them letting them glance off by his protection in turn 
the seventh Psalm, Psalm 7, 11 through 13, says that the Lord will then send back his fiery shafts of judgment. So Paul was probably thinking of all of these things as he was writing. I mean, he was a Pharisee. He was well-trained in Scripture, and he's probably thinking of these and then equating that with the uh, the armor on the Roman and coming up with his own set of uh, ideas to convey to us. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bows and makes it ready. He prepares himself for death himself, instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Okay, so that's the Psalm 7. says that the Lord will send back his fiery shafts of judgment. We are to trust the Lord by relying on the promises of his word. In doing so, the darts will the darts that are coming in will not harm us, and the Lord will take care of those who so attack. Vincent's Word Studies states the following concerning the use of this armor. He says, I love Vincent's, he always has something interesting to say. Temptation is thus represented as impelled from a distance. Satan attacks by indirection through good things from which no evil is suspected. Here is a hint of its propagating power. One sin draws another in its track. The flame of the fire-tipped dart spreads. Temptation acts on susceptible material. Self-confidence is combustible. Faith in doing away with dependence on self takes away fuel for the dart. It creates sensitiveness to holy influences by which the power of temptation is neutralized. It enlists the direct aid of God. Good stuff there. So you got these fiery darts coming in. How are you going to ward them off? Obviously, Paul is taking actual things and he's making spiritual applications. And if you just think through each of the implements that we've gone through, you can see that it's an important thing that he's done. But by giving you metaphors to convey what he's saying, it can help you to remember. You know, because we can't remember all the theology in the world. There are things that I type three months ago that I have completely forgotten that I typed them. Somebody will send me an a email about, uh, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Okay, and I get that one three times a year, I'll bet. Every time I get it, I have to go back and think it through. Every single time. I keep saying to myself, next time I'm going to copy this and I'm going to make a document so I can just copy it and send it off. But I don't want to give a wrong answer, so I sit down and I think the whole thing, oh yeah, that's there you go. Okay, but um, it, it, the reason why we have these metaphors is so we don't have to have all that theology in our head. We can say, well, oh, there's a shield, and now I remember the breastplate of righteousness, the, all these different things. And so uh, metaphor is a great, great tool. And everybody's different. Some people, you know, respond very well to chiasm. Some people respond very well to, uh, you know, whatever, uh, parallelism. Their minds work that way, especially like the uh, Proverbs, which I find really, really difficult to read. They like short little pieces of information. Well, one of the ways the Bible uses information is metaphor, and it helps people that are good at saying, oh, I got this, and I can equate it to this, and there it makes sense to me. So I said something back here, though, that I thought was kind of interesting. Where was I? I was talking about faith, and um, uh, shield of faith. Okay, it should be noted that this is not the act of faith, which is often referred to in the Bible. Okay, that makes me think about actually the uh, commentary that I typed this morning. Okay, I'm uh, we're in the book of Acts, and I want to read you something. And I want one of you, one of you can volunteer to just you're gonna have to come up here or you're gonna have to say it loud enough where they can hear you. But I want without you studying this verse, without you looking up any commentaries for this verse. 
without any of that. I just want you to tell me what this means if you hear it read, okay, from this, this Bible. I'm going to read it. I just want you to tell me right off the top of your head. That's all I want. What does this mean? Okay, it's not a, a trick question or anything. It's, I just want to give you an example of the importance of something. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 3, and Peter is speaking to them. I think it was verse 16, but we'll find out here. Okay, here it is. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Okay, here's my question. Anybody can answer, but answer loud enough where they can hear you. And his name, that's capital H, Jesus, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. What does that mean? That once you believe in Christ, have faith in Christ, you're saved. Well, no, but this is for the, I'm sorry, this is for the beggar who, uh, his legs are broken. Okay, He's, he was born with bad legs, okay, from his mother's womb. So, I, I, just want, I, I just want an analysis of that from that perspective. It's not salvation. It's just his legs and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. Anybody? Okay, so he was healed. How? By faith. In what? Jesus. Okay. All right. This is why it's so important to study. Okay. I've read that a million times, and I would have said the exact same thing as you. Okay. So it's not the right answer. It's not the right answer because the translation is incorrect. Okay. They followed after the King Jimmy version, which is incorrect. It says here, um, uh, and his name, through faith in his name, uh, uh, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. Okay. The word through in Greek is not through. The word in Greek through is dia. Think of diameter, right? Through, okay? That's not the word that's used there. The word is epi, like epidermis. What would that mean? Surface. Upon. Okay? Here we go. It says, and his name, upon faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him. The second time, it is dia, or through. They translated them both the same. It doesn't mean that that guy had any faith at all, because if you say through him, the faith, you have faith, and so the guy healed him, you have a contradiction in Scripture, because here's what it says up in, um, I'm just going to read you from the beginning, and we're, we're going to go up to verse 9, okay? Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the beautiful temple, at the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. So he's sitting there, and he's, he sees them, and he says, alms, alms, right? Okay. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter, uh, with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention. So he, he didn't really see him at all. He saw them, but he didn't see him. Now he's saying, I want you to recognize me. Okay. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Did he give him the gospel? No. Did he ask him to have faith in Jesus? No. Nothing. He said, I'm healing you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. There was no faith involved at all. So it was upon faith in the name. The action was from Peter. It was not from the man. See how important that is? Now, let me read you something from Acts 14. Now, you don't have to read this commentary because I'm telling you, no, I, it's much longer. I'm just giving you just this one little part. But Acts 14, verse 9. Paul is speaking. Let me start in verse 8. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet. It's a comparable passage. Peter does Peter, something. Paul. Paul does something. All the way through Acts, the same thing happens. They say the same things, the same. He does this, and then he goes into a discourse on it. You know, he uh, gets jailed. He gets jailed. He heals a blind person. He heals a blind. It's the same thing, and there's a reason for it. But and in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet, just like that other guy was sitting a cripple from his mother's womb. Same scenario. Who had never walked? Same, same exact scenario. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leapt and walked. Completely different in the product. Peter had faith and healed him upon the name of Jesus. This guy, Paul saw that he had faith and he said, you have faith, stand up. And the faith in him healed him. Why the difference? One, he's speaking to Israel. Two, he's speaking to somebody not of Israel. Israel had just killed their Messiah. Okay? They needed a demonstration of the power of the name of the person they had rejected. This guy heard the power and he believed. Completely different scenario. But if you go by this verse right here in these versions, you have an actual contradiction in the passage and you also have a complete misunderstanding. I was... I, I emailed Sergio right away and I said, read this. And he came back. He said, oh, it's so marvelous to actually study the word of God. It's so marvelous to, and that's why I keep telling you guys, read the Bible, read the Bible. And then when you get to something that this version doesn't match this version, it's time for you to study why. Because there are going to be differences. Everybody's coming at these things with their presuppositions. And I'm going to tell you something. Out of all of the commentators I read, I saw two that got this right. Every single one of them, you've got uh, John Gill, you've got uh, Charles Ellicott, you've got Albert Barnes, you've got um, the Cambridge Scholars. Well, yeah, Bollinger? anyway, uh, uh, no, not Bollinger, but I do have the pulpit commentary. Uh, we've, got, uh, we've got all these scholars I read every single morning, and they all are perfectly trained in the Greek. It's just like their own native language. They know what the context is. They know, the, they know all about it, okay? And yet they come to completely different conclusions. And isn't that primarily because Israel is following the law, and it's the law that will supposedly give them salvation? Whereas, well, that and that's the that point I'm making. The point they, is that they are trying like to. You believe, and you will be. That's right. Saved. That's the point I'm making, though. Exactly. But, Get to but it, all right. <laughs> the point that I'm giving you is that these scholars all know the Greek, and yet their commentaries on this particular verse were completely different, and two of them actually clued into what was going on. And so even reading people, when somebody says, he knows Greek and Hebrew, that means this much if they don't know the Bible. I know people that know Greek and Hebrew that will call me to understand what's in the Bible. 
well, actually Hebrew. Uh, yeah, Hebrew. I, I don't know anybody that knows Greek that calls me. But Hebrew, I know people in Israel that live there. That's their native language, and they will call me to answer Bible questions, okay? Knowing a language, even knowing it perfectly, does not mean that you are theologically adept. So don't go by Char what Charlie Garrett says. Don't go by what the doctor in Greek studies says. It doesn't make any difference. Those are what are known as source fallacies. I'm putting my trust in the source because of his credentials or because of, you know, his knowledge of a language. That is a very, very bad place to be. What you want to do is to know that that has been properly researched, compare it against what is actually going on in Scripture, and the only way you can know that is by knowing Scripture. That is it. So it was interesting that we talked about the walk of faith here and then the same thing here. It's almost the same, and so I didn't mean to divert, but I, I was so excited about reading that this morning. And then, you know, right, typing up the commentary, and that's only a short little bit of it. I mean, it's probably three or four pages long, but, uh, you know, it, well, I, I had to share it with Sergio because he's up at the same time I am because it's seven hours earlier there, and he's getting up the same time I do every day. But, um, yeah, it, no kidding. We're reading the Bible at the same time every day, our morning studies, and when we get done, we start greeting each other. But seven hours, I mean, that's like 10 o'clock you get up. I'm sorry. The day is almost over for me. It's a night out. Yeah, I know, but still, if people people will call me and they'll say, what are you doing? I'll say, I'm having lunch, and they'll say, it's 8 in the morning. I'll say, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 5 hours. You get up at what time? 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. There you go. Why are you having lunch at 12 o'clock? Okay, um, let's see. Your life application on what we just read, uh, Ephesians six sixteen. Let us exercise faith just as those faithful of God in the past. Let us trust that what God offers is far better than whatever the devil can hurl in our direction. Temptations of sex, money, drugs, moral perversion of all kinds, these things need to be kept from us by God's protective shield. Let us hide ourselves in the Lord through faith. He will win the battle for us while keeping us safe from the enemy. Um, I, a lady, I won't say any more than a lady, emailed me just before class started, about an hour and a half before, and she said that uh, she was reading, I don't know if it was today's commentary, she told me, and I, whichever one it was, she has chronic pains in her body. And she said, I was reading your commentary, and what you said was exactly what I was stressing over. And uh, is chronic the word where it goes on and on? Okay, that's correct. Okay. Uh, and then um, she read uh, Spurgeon also, and Spurgeon gave her basically the same information on that. And um, what was my point there? These need to be kept. Um, oh, and the reason why she was encouraged is because it was pertaining to the word. And if you don't keep your nose in the word, how can you have the faith that the Lord is there with you through the trials? That was the point I was going to make, is that, once again, everything comes back to reading the word as far as your walk of faith. Christ has come. He has done everything that's necessary, and because he has done that, it is documented for us to read and to say, I trust that even through these pains, even through these trials, even through these troubles, Christ has promised me something better. I may, may never get rid of this pain in my life. I may. The Lord may heal me. They may find a cure, whatever it is. But in the meantime, people that don't know the Lord, I don't know how they get up in the morning and function properly. I really don't know how they do it because I'm trying to think, what was it like for me before I knew the Lord? 
And I don't, I can't even imagine what it would be like waking up in the morning and not knowing the Lord with the way that the world comes against me every single day. I, I, I just don't know how people do it. But stay in the word, keep reading the word. Even when you don't feel like reading the word, read the word. Okay, verse six, seven, six, six, seventeen. Your mom texts. She's home watching. She's oh, hi, mom. Yeah, sorry, mom. You just we miss you so much. Okay. Mm, yeah. Love you, mom. I'll not tell him again next time. <laughs> okay, take the helmet. I'm glad to hear that because I was getting worried. There we go. Okay. Then don't rake her over the cold. No, I gotta rake her a little bit. She's my mom. <laughs> take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Oh, Paul now admonishes the Christian to take the helmet of salvation. Charles Ellicott notes that there is a break here. We are said not to put on, but to take, or rather receive, a word specially appropriate to salvation. The Greek word for salvation is not what is more commonly used. It gives the sense of tending towards salvation. In other words, it would be our hope of salvation. The thought is, and take the hope of your salvation and put it on your head like a helmet. You already know you're saved. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying that you have a hope in your salvation. I, what I was just talking about, I know that God is going to deliver me from this world. I know that he is. I have a hope that goes beyond this world. That's what that's speaking of. It is an adornment, this helmet for all to see, and it is a protection against anything which could come against our reason. Think of it. If you have a hope in what the Bible says about your future, if you really do, I'm not talking about just this kind of, uh, yeah, I, Jesus is coming someday, but you really, really believe it, then you can wear that on your head so that everybody says, what is it that makes you so happy all the time? What is it that gives you the confidence when the lefties are running the nation into the, the ground. What is it that gives you hope when the entire world is persecuting its citizens over a, a, a shot, right? What is your hope? That is what you're supposed to display. And the second thing, it says, it is a protection against anything which could come against our reason. If somebody says all of the Christians in this village are going to be taken out and executed, right? They say that, and you're one of the Christians. Are you going to be like, oh, it's the end of the world? Or are you going to say, you know what? I have a hope that's beyond this place. I remember, I, I'm sure I've mentioned in this class, or at least during the Sunday sermons, is the pictures of the, uh, what the uh, Turks did, the Ottoman Empire to the Armenians. They actually crucified Christians. This is since photography, so it's been in the last 150 years, it just crucified them all the way up and down the road. People hanging naked, completely bare and naked, crucified because they were Christians. And some of them were nominal Christians that didn't really believe in Jesus. They didn't have the hope of salvation. And they died just as surely as the people that said, you know what? I'm going to be rising from this someday. What is your hope? And that's what this is speaking of. It is an adornment for all to see, and it is a protection against anything which could come against our reason. Somebody says you're going to be taken out and shot right now. That comes against your reason very quickly. And if you don't have a real, true, solidified hope, your end is going to be completely different than the person that does. That's for sure. We are not to intellectually surrender our hope. We are to contemplate the hope of our salvation, knowing that it is our great protection for that time to come. It is a wonderful picture of 
eternal salvation. Not what Methodists teach, but what the Bible teaches. Eternal salvation. You cannot walk away from it. You cannot lose it because you did something wrong. Christ has covenanted with you. He has sealed you with his spirit. He has given you a guarantee. And if that does not come to pass, then his sealing was of no value and his guarantee was not a guarantee. That's all there is to it. One cannot take on a hope of something that is not going to surely come about. Yes, I know that there are people that are not really good Christians anymore that called on Jesus at one time. God will deal with that. He will deal with that when they stand before him. But he will say that you disappointed me right up to the very end. But I'm going to save you because at one point in your life, you called out to me and you trusted me and you believe the gospel. That is what's going to happen. If you want an example of it, it's going to be in Sunday sermon. It's been in every Sunday sermon for the past 300 sermons. Is Israel. Is Israel right, right with the Lord right now? They're not even close to being right with the Lord. They are further away from the Lord than the United States, and that's pretty pathetic at this point, okay? But God has said, I will never forsake this group of people, ever. If you don't believe me, go read Leviticus 26, and when you get down towards the end, start reading slower, okay? He's going to destroy them. He's going to destroy them. He's going to destroy them. Yet, for my name's sake, I will not utterly forsake these people. And he is not going to. And he repeats it in Ezekiel 36 in a passage that hasn't even yet been fulfilled. Yet, for the sake of my holy name, I'm going to do these things. His name is on the line with Israel. And guess what? His name is on the line with you. 100%. It is on the line with you. If you have called on him and he has sealed you with his spirit, it is a done deal. How are you doing today? Oh, okay. Vincent's Word Studies describes the helmet in use at Paul's time. The helmet was originally of skin, strengthened with bronze or other metal, and sur surmounted with a figure adorned with a horsehair crest. It was furnished with a visor to protect the face. Once again, that's Vincent's Word Studies. We can look to the future with confidence because we have a helmet of salvation which adorns us. And even our face is protected from harm. That is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where it says the following. Hang on a second here. 1 Thessalonians, whoops, oh, yeah, I've messed that up pretty good now. 1 Thessalonians 5, and well, it'd help if I got into 1 Thessalonians. Let's see here, 1 Thessalonians 5, and verse 8 says, uh, da, 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 da. but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet of the hope of salvation. So here you go. I'll find it. Let's see here. It's going to be all I need is six. Yeah, that one right now. Okay, so um, it, we also then are to take on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword was the only offensive weapon chosen by Paul. Every other weapon or every other implement that this uh, soldier is wearing is defensive, except this one, okay? They were trained. Uh, it was the most important part of the soldier's armament. They were trained in and carried other weapons, but without a sword, they could not be considered as properly armed. Close in fighting required this implement, and it is this which Paul has in mind direct contact fighting. The sword was a short sword with both, both edges highly sharpened. Cut this way, cut that way, okay? Here and at times, the term sword of the spirit is not to be separated from the term the word of God. Charismatics and others who claim spiritual gifts err 
if they think that they are granted a special anointing which makes them super warriors of Christ without knowing and applying the word of God properly. Everybody got that? You can't take the verse, cut it in half and say, this applies to us, but we don't need to know the word of God. The only offensive weapon that we have is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is it. If we don't have this word, we cannot go on the offensive. And if we don't know this word, we are not acting properly in the presence of the Lord. That's all there is to it. Verses need to be taken in context. Dispensations in time need to be considered. And our theology is to be Christ-centered. When we fail to apply the word of God in this manner, we have no sword of the Spirit. Instead, we have parts of God's word ripped out of their intended context, but having no true power. To misuse scripture is to be without our, own, our only offensive weapon, which has been described by Paul. There's only one of them. It's the Bible. That's why I harp on people constantly. Please read the Bible. Please read the Bible. Know your Bible. Think on it. Meditate on it. Go to bed reading it. Wake up in the morning reading it. If you have time during lunch, don't watch TV. You know, I'm in the bank today, and I see this person, and they've got their thing, and they're they're playing with it standing in the line, you know, and you hear all these little things going off, and, and that's not the best use of your time, in my opinion, okay? If I heard the person saying, you know, and the sword of the spirit, and I heard him listening to the Bible, I said, that's a good use of the time. But we've got so much time invested in these little things that we carry around. You go to the, uh, what was it, about five years ago, four years ago, I was flying, and I was waiting in the terminal for the next airplane. And I looked around, and every single person, without fail, every single person in the place that I was sitting, probably 150 people, had a smart thing, and they were looking at it, and they were playing on it, doing something. Now, I would hope that at least some of them have a Bible on there, and they're scrolling through the Bible. I don't know if they're doing that or not, but we've got so much time free in this life compared to other ages, and yet we fritter it away on things that just aren't valuable. Read the Word of God, okay? Life application. From this verse, we should be comforted in the knowledge that we are saved. We are to take up that knowledge, and we are to adorn ourselves with it. Let us not waver in this precept. And further, we are to stand fast on the word of God, using it as our main means of engaging the enemy. God wrote it, and so it is the most effective weapon we can employ. Let us never fail to keep it handy, apply it properly, and stand fast on its eternal precepts. And I got to tell you what, if you go somewhere and you see somebody that has the word of God and they're using it as a sword and they're using it improperly, I'm going to tell you what, the people that shouldn't be hurt are going to be hurt by it. And the people that are using it are going to hurt themselves. If you've got a sword and it's real sharp and you're wielding it the wrong way, you're going to cut off your own leg, right? Then that's what people do when they are untrained in the Bible. They take the Bible and they say, oh, look at this verse. And it's completely out of context. It has nothing to do with anything that they're arguing. And yet they're using that verse and saying, see, this is what you need to do, okay? Make sure that people use this word properly. That's the most important thing you do. Nobody goes into battle that has not been trained in proper usage of the sword without getting himself killed. That's all there is to it, okay? I guarantee you that the people that were in Israel in the old days trained just as the Roman soldiers trained. They went out there and they had their spears. And they, well, what does it say about the Benjamites? Okay, they could sling a stone hair's by a hair's breadth. 
Okay, did that just happen? I bet you they were out there all day, every day as kids learning to throw that thing. And so what happened? They were attacked by an overwhelming force and they destroyed it. The next day, another overwhelming force comes and they destroyed it. Kept happening. And finally, the Lord says, today or I will deliver them into your hands. Okay. But there was a catastrophe for the people because they were well trained. All right. And uh, so you got to know this word, but you also have to use it properly. The Roman soldiers trained and they trained and they trained. If you're a Navy SEAL, what do you do? You go out there and you train. I don't think I would have lasted the first 27 minutes of SEAL training. I uh, watched a special on it one time. And also I watched one on the SAS, brutal stuff they went through. And I thought I would not have made it. You introduce cold, I'm not going to make it. Okay, that's it. I'm, I'm not going to make it. And they, they would be out there shivering, freezing. Some of them had high temperatures from like, you know, fever because they're sick and they wouldn't give up. They kept going because they wanted to be Navy SEALs. And if you give up, you're out. There's no, oh, go to the uh, hospital, get better, and come back and finish your training. That doesn't happen. You either made it through or you didn't. And that's the same idea here. You want to make it through? This is what you need to be trained in, right here. It doesn't come to you by sleeping on top of it. It doesn't come to you by hearing a, a good feeling message on church, at church on Sunday morning. That's not how you get proper theology. You get proper theology by having headaches actual headaches thinking about what God is telling you in his word by reading things that are very complicated by people that are way smarter than I would ever be. And they give you these evaluations of the word and you say, what is that guy trying to say? And then finally you figure it out. You just keep reading it until you figure it out. So um, who was that? And was that important? No. Okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, 618. Okay. Before I get going on that, let me just say, if, if I'm going to be writing a sentence of things that I need to pick up the grocery store, I'd go, this, comma, that, comma, the other thing, comma, right. and that should be the last thing I would get. The sentence starts with an and. Wouldn't that be like a a, a, a seventh weapon or defensive? 18. 18. Where are we? Uh, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Okay, mine doesn't have an and here, but... If the and is in the Greek, then you could say, yes, this is supplemental to all of it. And prayer can be offensive. You're and defensive. And defensive. Absolutely. It can be both. Or it can just be simply uh, a petition, a supplication. There's all kinds of prayers. Sure. You know, you've got the, uh, uh, what is it, the Psalms, the, um, uh, no, I'm trying to think of the word, the uh, uh, Psalms of imprecation. You can have prayers of imprecation, too. Okay, you're so so to the end of praying for your nation when you realize that it's over. Okay, and there are nations that are over in this world. It's time to go to your your prayers of imprecation. Okay, you, not for the individuals, but for the cause. Okay, you just want to say it's time to, for God's judgment to come, but you still want to pray for the people. I know that's hard, but that's what we're supposed to do. What's that? Yours says with all. His says and, and this one says. It just, I'm going to read verse 17 and 18 so you can see. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So I don't know what the Greek actually says. I'd have to pull it up, and I'm not going to take the time on it right now. But um, let's see here, 618. Paul is still referring to the whole armor of God in these words. 
Though they are not being described with a metaphor, as the previous verses were, they still follow the same thought. We know this with certainty because it follows in the same admonition which was given in verse 10. There he instructs us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. In order to accomplish this, we are to be, as Paul says, praying always. This fits with the words of 1 Thessalonians 5.17, praying without ceasing. Yes, pray without ceasing. This does not mean that we get on our knees and stay there all day long without accomplishing anything, okay? That's not what that means. There are many types of prayers, and the admonition fits any of them at any given time. If you are praying without ceasing and you're on your knees praying, you will never get anything done in this life, okay? So praying without ceasing does not mean stop and pray and pray and pray. You can pray while you're driving as long as your eyes are open and you're obeying the laws. You can pray while you're walking. You can pray while you're taking out the garbage. You can pray when you're taking a shower or any other time. It doesn't mean that you have to do something formal, okay? Prayer prayer is communication with your creator. That's what prayer is, okay? You are communicating with your creator, creator in some way or another. You're asking him for something. You're praying for somebody. You're, you're spilling your heart out to him, whatever it is. Prayer is communicating with your creator. Paul says to do that without ceasing, okay? So it doesn't mean that we get on our knees. As I said, there are many types of prayers, and the admonition fits any one of them at any given time. There are formal prayers and informal prayers. There are silent prayers of the heart given in our times of distress or deep need. And there are vocal prayers which are given to build up others for courage, comfort, or edification. There are secret prayers given between oneself and God which reveal the innermost soul of the one praying. There are public prayers offered for gatherings of God's people as they meet to worship or petition him. There are prepared prayers which are meticulously worded. I do one of those every 4th of July for the Sarasota Patriots. Would you do another prayer this year? Yes, I will. So I go down there and I, I prepare it. I type it all up and it's very formal and it's there to inspire the people to do their jobs as citizens of the nation. This last year, they emailed me and I said, I can't make it that day. It's a Sunday and guess what? I'll be in church. And so they uh, said, Charlie, would you please type a prayer? And we will read it because they wanted the prayer down there. And so that's what I did for them. I'm sorry I couldn't give it. It's Sunday. I'm here preaching. And so that's what happens. There are prepared prayers which are meticulously worded in order to inspire deep conviction, reverence, or courage. And there are sudden prayers which leap out of our souls as we come upon a moment of need. All of these are just suitable prayers. Praying always just means praying always. Paul's admonition to be always or praying always is one which should be taken literally. There is never a time that we can simply talk to God and not be considered a prayer. That's all that prayer is. It's, it's a type of communication with our Creator. Okay? I'll go through the list again. There's all kinds of prayers. Okay? Um, Patton. I assume that this is a true story from the movie Patton. Um, they gave the name of the person, etc. So I imagine it's true. But Patton said um, uh, to a person, they were expecting very bad weather. And he went to the uh, uh, chaplain and he said, Chaplain, I want you to say a prayer for good weather tomorrow so that we can defeat our enemies. And the chaplain was like, I don't know if we can do that. I, you know, praying for weather to kill our enemies. And he said, do it. And 
the prayer was read, and I would assume that it was the prayer that was given to Pat. I don't know if that's true, but uh, they had great weather the next day, and it was totally unexpected. They were delivered by prayer, and I do believe that that can happen. The Lord will respond. Oh, look, we got something here. Come on over here. Set that down on the one of these chairs. Good to see you there. Yes. Yes, Sandra. Yes. Okay, so he's going to come over here, and he's got something to say to a couple of people. So you got to come stand right here. Let me Where? make sure you come over here a little further. Okay, he's got something to say to some people in the UK. I want to thank Benzer and, and, and Sandra. Sandra, Sandra for coming all the way to the United States to introduce us to Charlie. <laughs> so that's how we met. Thank you for the lovely gift and the thought, and God bless you, and hope you're safe in the UK, and have a great holiday season. All right, good. Thank you very year. much. All right. Thank you. What Enjoy. he's talking about there, I'll tell you the backstory. is that, um, uh, what's that? Oh, yeah. Thank you, Tom. Say hi to Wa for us. Yes, that is how we met. They, we had some wonderful people that attend online. They attend on Sunday morning, and I hope that they're still awake. It's a little late there, so I don't know if they're awake right now. But um, Benzer and Sandra are in the UK, and they came to visit the church all the way from the UK to visit, and they spent a week with us. And they, before we met them on Thursday night, they uh, uh, were walking around. They came to the Bible class. But before that happened, they went down and were looking at all the stores around here. And they stopped and they had lunch at a brand new restaurant that opened about eight minutes before COVID fell on the world, okay? And so they had to struggle through their first year of business because of COVID. But Sandra and uh, Benzer and Sandra were down there uh, having lunch, and they came here, and they said, oh, we had the greatest pizza. Have you been there? I said, I didn't know it was there. They had just opened. And so they walked us down there, and they all became friends. And so uh, Benzer and Sandra sent them something for Christmas this year. And so we delivered that to them last week. Hideko delivered it, and then uh, they won he wanted to extend a formal thank you. But that's how we met them, and that's how we have this wonderful pizza from time to time. And uh, the reason why we got pizza tonight is because Lee, who attends online, the people know him as Nuke uh, Zero. Nuke Zero, he uh, attends online. He's one of the moderators, and he came for Bible class tonight. But he had an appointment which was moved up by an hour in Tampa, and so he had to leave. So we got no Nuke Zero for the Bible class, and he gets no pizza. We get his pizza instead. So there you go with that. Um, we'll get back, and we'll finish up in just a minute. And uh, where was I? We're in uh, uh, 617 still. So we were talking about praying, praying without ceasing and all that kind of stuff. And let's see here. Um, Paul's admonition to be praying always is one which should be taken literally. There's never a time that we can simply talk to God and it not be considered prayer. We also pray... Uh, we are also to pray with, Paul says, supplication. Prayer is more general, whereas supplication is more specific. When one has a family member suffering with illness, he will petition God through supplication, begging for relief for his loved one. When David heard that his child was going to die, right? Remember that? He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's told this child will not live. The child got sick. And what did David do? He went through prayers of supplication. He went through them continuously, all right, until the child died. And then what did he do? They were afraid to tell him. They thought, no, he's already been out of shape. Maybe he's going to kill himself or something, do something rash. Instead, he got up, he washed his face, and he went into the presence of the Lord, and he worshiped him. 
And they said, what are you doing? He said, the child is dead. I prayed for that child to live while he was alive. There's nothing I can do now. So that's what a supplication is, okay? He begged for relief for his loved one. But whether it is through prayer or supplication, it is to be in the spirit. This means that the heart is to be directed to God. And the prayers are not to simply be rote repetitions. That's an important thing because too often our prayers get to be rote. Probably the most rote of all rotes are the prayers of the rosary. The idea of praying the rosary is never even hinted at in scripture. It is not even hinted at, okay? Uh, the war movie that I watched this week, like I said, took, I don't know, four or five days to get through because I watched 10 minutes a day. But uh, uh, the guy was a Catholic and he prayed the rosary, all right? And he did his little Catholic things, all right? And the daughter said to him, Daddy, I want to be a Methodist. And he said, why do you want to do that? She says, I want to say my own prayers. So there you go. The little child can tell you when something is not right. All right, the idea of praising, praying the rosary is never hinted at in scripture. We aren't to just mindlessly repeat things in our prayers, but we are to rather use our minds and hearts to join with God in our prayer life. Next, he tells us that we are to be watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Paul's admonition to be watchful means that we are to look around us, observe what is going on, determine a need in others, and then to offer our prayers for that need. We aren't to simply have our eyes closed to the world around us, but we are to be aware of what is happening in order to make effective prayers. These prayers then are to be with all perseverance and supplication. That's Paul's words. When the, when the need is seen, we don't just pray once and cease, but we should rather pray frequently and specifically supplication for that which is before us. This is to be done, as Paul says, for all the saints as well. We may not all agree in this life, but if we are chosen by God because of having received Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are not to withhold our prayers for our brothers and sisters. Color of skin, nation of origin, social status, and the like, none of these things should be a barrier to our offering of prayers for others. Unfortunately, it is, but none of those things should be, all right? Life application, we're going to be done a little early today. Much is written about prayers and prayer life, books, in fact. We can spend so much time reading about how to pray, and yet we can completely ignore the simple admonition that we are to be praying always. We don't need to read books about how to pray. We simply need to pray. Let us keep our eyes on Jesus and our hearts focused on our relationship with God. Earlier in the class, I said I know people that read book after book after book about the Bible, and they have never written the Bible, read the Bible, okay? And obviously, if you've read the Bible through even one time, you've been through the book called Psalms. And all you need to do is just use those as a pattern. If you can't figure out how to pray, just go to the Psalms, read them, and then modify them for your life. Because there's every kind of prayer that you can imagine in the book of Psalms. And there's everything in there. Paul, he's got, I mean, uh, David, he's got his heart poured out to the Lord over his own sin. He's got his heart poured out to the Lord for his nation. He's got his heart poured out for this and for that. All right? Prepare my fingers for the battle. He tells us all of these things. If you want to know how to prepare yourself for for a, a job interview tomorrow, go read David. 
you'll find something, right? Every single Monday before I type my sermon or while I'm at the mall, after having started the sermon and I forgot to pray, I always say the same thing, Lord, prepare my fingers for this battle. David said it, it's in the word of God and I'm going into a battle. I'm going to be facing the word of God and I want to prevail. I want to get everything I can out of it so I can present it properly to the people. Lord, prepare my fingers for this battle. Okay, and I pray about, give me wisdom in your word. I ask for that all the time because I'm a simple guy, but his word is very complicated. And so we have to ask for wisdom. Give me illumination in your word. Then he will do it. He's not, he wants this word revealed. He wants this word revealed to the people. Okay, if you're reading it, I used to call it mom's not here, but she'll tell you this is true. I used to call it confirmation. I'd read the Bible and I get to the thing and I say, I have no idea what you're trying to tell us, Lord. Would you please just tell me what you're trying to say? One day later, I'll be listening to a sermon by somebody that has never spoken about anything even closely related to it before, and he will suddenly say, oh, and by the way, let's go to this passage, and he explains it, exactly what I needed. And that happens so many times. I'm asking the Lord, reveal your word to me. It happens so many times that I would call mom and I'd say, I got another confirmation. I needed to know what a passage said, and I got a commentary on it, okay? Happened all the time. If you are willing to seek out the word, he will reveal it to you. He will send somebody in your way that is more competent than you are at figuring out that particular passage. And that guy, guess what? He doesn't know the whole Bible either. He knows all what it says, but he might not know what it's about in a particular area. He's struggling with it. He'll say the same prayer, and somebody else that was smarter than him in that particular area will teach him. That's how we learn, is by going into the Word and asking the Lord for direction and, and illumination in it, okay? In doing so, prayers will come naturally through simple and heartfelt communication. I knew a guy, uh, Joe, I won't give his last name because he's here in Sarasota, but this guy could give you the finest prayers you have ever heard. He would open us in Bible class over at Grace Baptist, okay? And he would pray marvelous prayers. And I, one time I went to him, I said, Joe, where did you learn to pray? And his wife butted in really quickly and said, he used to be the worst prayer person. He couldn't pray at all. And finally, he just decided, I'm going to start praying. And that guy could, he would just pray the most beautiful prayers to open us every time. And then, you know, of course, we need somebody to close us in class. And he's the obvious choice. You know, Joe, would you close us in prayer? And marvelous prayers. So it, it's just something that you do. And eventually, you get it. What's that? You got it closed, but in in this verse we read, yeah, four alls in there. Oh, okay. Go ahead and read them. Okay. All prayer. All prayer. At all times. All times. All per perseverance. All perseverance and all for supplication. All saints. Oh, for all the saints. Four alls. Four alls in there. Now, the navigators have dedicated this month is to pr pray Jesus' name. Okay. You know what he said. I did this the other day on, on Ephesians chapter 3. Right. Go through each verse and thank him for what is going on in that verse. It's marvelous. Oh, I'm telling you. I, I, I had never done that before. On, you know, just go, go through it. it Ephesians 3 it and works. thank him for it everything. That, yeah, absolutely. Right. Wow. And you know what? Praying in the name of Jesus is appropriate. I, I, she probably watches the Bible studies too. So she, when she gets the letter, she sent me a letter and I wrote her yesterday to respond to it. But it's a good enough question for everybody. Uh, you know, she asked, if the Lord says in Exodus 3.15, my name is Jehovah and that is 
my name forever, and then shouldn't we be praying in the name of Jehovah? And I said, no, because that is an incomplete revelation of who he is. The word o, o is olam, le olam, to forever. And that can mean simply to a certain point. The word olam in Hebrew means to the vanishing point. Olam simply means a, a point that we don't know about. Well, when Christ came, the name Jehovah is never mentioned again in the, the Bible, all the way through the New Testament. Now, the thought of the name is mentioned in the Bible. I am, I, I, I am the one who was and who is and who uh, is to come. That's right. So the thought of the name Jehovah is there. But who is saying that? Jesus. And what does it say in the Old Testament? The Lord says, Jehovah, every knee shall bow and every name shall proclaim my name. Okay. And what does it say in the New Testament? That at the name of Jesus, Jesus he is the full, the final, and the forever complete revelation of who I am is. And that's why there's nothing wrong and everything right with praying in the name of Jesus. is because he is God's final, he's his final revelation of who he is. And everything about Jesus reveals who the Father is. And when Paul says praying in the Spirit, and then at another time he says the Spirit of Christ. Because there's one God in three persons, okay, and they are one essence. All right, so you're not doing any violence at all praying in the name of Jesus. In fact, you are exalting the name of God by praying in the name of Jesus. That's what the Bible tells us to do first. But secondly, God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. So never feel like you can't pray in the name of Jesus. That's what the Bible tells us to. That is what we are to do. All right, so and saying that, yes, one more time. Oh, let me see if I can find that. Um, I can't because. Um, uh, I'd have to log in, and I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. Um, hang on. Uh, oh, yes, I will. I'm going to take the time to do this because it's just, we've got another couple minutes, and this is worth it. I'm going to have to log in, so give me just a second here, um, and I'm going to read you a poem. My friend who writes many of the poems that I use during the sermons because they're very precise, and they, they get to the point of, uh, uh, of whatever is being said at the time, but um, hang on. Give me just a second to type this in. So you don't wrote the Christos. Huh? Well, no, I write all of my own. If if she writes it, I always say, this is my okay. friend. Right. Okay. I write all of my own poems. But um, uh, give me one second. All right. And this is a very, very nice poem. And so, um, Say she was five or seven. I, I, I give me a second. Oh, okay. um, yeah, you, you, you can't overwhelm my small brain, I can only do so much <laughs> at a time. So, you, you, you just got to let me do one thing or another. You asked for this, okay? The browser won't open, okay? I, I will have to write it down and I'll have to read it later. It was the very first poem by her granddaughter who was about five years old, and it was marvelous. Yeah. It, it was very short, it was very succinct, and it was marvelous. But for now, we'll have our own prayer, Heavenly Father. Thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to share in your word. Lord, I would pray that anybody that listens to these studies would be willing to read your word, not just to spout out what other people are telling, that other pastors are saying, that, that uh, other denominations teach that could be incorrect, but to go to your word and to actually think through what is said in your word. That is where the sweet spot is because that is what you have given us until the day that you come for us to know who you are and what you expect of us. Lord, help us to be responsible in this, and may our heads hurt 
from the study that we go through to search out the mysteries which are contained in your word. May we be that diligent. Lord, thank you. We ask that you bless this food. It sure smells good. And we just uh, thank you for the chance to come together and have it. We love you. We praise you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let me back this thing up.